When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello, and welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on late guest requests for a wedding, asking for reassurance on a generous offer. Also, we dive into not being the office know-it-all. We answer a question about who to address a sympathy card to, and an urban workplace myth that is very much alive. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, we talk about whether or not to purchase flowers for all when a vendor comes to the table. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on Pinkies Out from the Rituals of Dinner by Margaret Visser. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I'm back from Martha's Vineyard. Tough life. Yeah, no, it was a very, very good to finally get a vacation in and some some time off from the old work. Do Although, tell. I was going to say I still managed to end up having to do work while I was down there, but that's just life these days. <laughs> Beyond the work. Talk about Martha's Vineyard. Let me live vicariously through you just a little bit. Beautiful. Um, my my mom's side of the family has a really large property down there that we go to, and I'm really grateful anytime that they book time down there. It's a really large beach. They do this big opening between the ponds on the property and the beach because the ponds are very close to the ocean, and during the rest of the year, the rain causes the salinity in the ponds to go down, and so that can kill off a lot of the saltwater fish life. And so we re- we call it opening the cut. And we cut through the beach and let the saltwater back in to re- resalinate the, the pond life and allow all of the wonderful creatures that live in the ponds to thrive. And it was really cool because this year the cut kind of made this big, deep S shape as it reformed itself and, and kind of as the water does its flow between ocean and pond. And it's really fun. It creates a cool space to swim in and all the little kids love it with their boogie boards and that's always really fun. We had a big lobster dinner which I posted about on Instagram and that was really great. I loved having my mom set us up so that all three of us, my mom, my dad and I could all see out to the beach while we were eating and I think that's just a good example of how you can change up your dining experience so that everyone has a view, everyone has a good seat, you know, you can no all rules. enjoy. Well, kind of a rule. Yeah. Give everyone a good seat. Give everyone a good seat. So it was a really, really great break uh, from a lot of interesting mer- mercury retrograde hassles that have popped up this month. I don't know if the rest of you are feeling 
it. On my way back, however, I had a really nice moment. I popped into our local grocery store here, and the gal who was ringing me up had, you know, entered my member card number at the grocery store, and she said, Lizzie Post, she said, do you, do you, do you do that podcast, that awesome etiquette podcast? I was like, yes, I do. She goes, I love that podcast. I'm in my mid years now. And it's just, I find it so helpful to navigating social life and everything. And so I said that we would dedicate this show to Anna at City Market. (laughs) I like it. What an affirmation of a return to work. I think so. I do believe so. (laughs) It always feels good to come back to something that Makes you feel good? Makes other people feel good? Yes, absolutely. Speaking of, let's get to the show. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social post so that we know you want your question on the show. And sustaining members, remember to put sustaining member in your message. We'll answer your questions on the sustaining member site where you can access an ads-free version of the show and all your bonus questions. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question is titled, I do doozy, and it does sound like a bit of a doozy for a wedding question. Hello, I did not think I would write into an advice column of any sort, but I am at a loss. Years of therapy and problem solving, and I'm still not sure what the path forward is for this situation. 
The issue? I received a call from my dad a few days ago saying he would like to make three additions to our wedding guest list. The additions were his wife's brothers and their partners and his wife's son. I do not want these folks at my wedding for varied reasons. Simultaneously, I do not want to be callous or rude in my decision-making or in sharing my decision. What is the best way to share this information with my father and his wife? Really, his wife is the only one in the dark. I shared my feelings with my father when he asked. Relevant background information. My parents divorced when I was five. My mother had primary custody, and my relationship with my father and his second and third wives has never been substantial. My mother cannot attend the wedding due to personal reasons, which everyone understands, and I have invited her two siblings who do not get along with my father and their children, my only cousins. My relationship with these step-family members ranges from active dislike to superficial cordiality. My brother married five years ago and shared his guest list with me. I sent my father the list of guests relevant to him, and he confirmed all of them. He did not mention his wife's guests at that time. My father expected to pay for the whole wedding, but I was not comfortable with this. All of our parents are splitting the costs of the wedding expenses, and we are paying for the rehearsal. I have made it clear that our invitations will read together with their families. I have only ever discussed wedding plans and finances directly with my father, not his wife, and I do not see her as involved in the planning process. This has been working well so far, and I had hoped to avoid what I believe will be a hurtful conversation with her, and honestly, a highly uncomfortable one for me and my dad, where I have to tell her this is between my father and I. I have every intention of offering her projects that interest her, such as helping with escort card writing, decor, etc., as we get closer to the wedding. Thank you for your time and patience. All the best, C. This is a tough one. It is. And I actually appreciate some of that extra detail. It helps as you kind of parse through what is a gray area etiquette question, because while Oftentimes we say on this show, guest lists are completely up to you. You get to choose. Things are slightly complicated by the fact that all the parents are chipping in and paying, which technically means by etiquette standards, everyone gets a little bit of a say, a proportional say, a a part of the say. Or at least it has to be discussed whether they will or won't. And that discussion has happened in this particular relationship. It has. And... My first thought is return to that discussion Mm -hmm. and continue with what works for you. If your father has been your point of contact, the person that you've been speaking with and been discussing this with, and you really feel like including his new wife, your stepmother, is going to complicate things, is going to be difficult and awkward, I think it's okay to continue that discussion with your father. I would give it another chance. When the ask is fresh and it's your first response – It can be a lot for someone to digest quickly. And I also like the idea of giving yourself more time to frame and craft your answer in a way that lets your father hear it. And as I hear you play out your reasoning, it sounds really reasonable to me. And I want to lean on that and I want to lean on the hope that with a second, maybe even third pass, that your father could hear that and 
that discussion would be honored and you could still get a result that makes sense to you for all of the reasons that you've been talking about in your question. Yeah, I think that this can be a, a pretty clean and simple one. I think that you can simply say to your dad, you know, I mean, clearly you've already expressed some of your feelings about the fact that you just don't care for these family members. But I do think that you can express to your father that, you know, dad, I did give it some thought, but I want you to know that we really have already settled upon the guest list and I'm not willing to add more guests at this point. Boom. Done. End of story. I always do like to encourage people to leave room for people to surprise you. The one person on this list that I would consider making an exception for is your, the the wife's son, your quote-unquote stepbrother. I think that if that happens to be the person that you outwardly and actively dislike, as you mentioned, I might consider that as well as a reason not to um, and just make it a clear-cut no, no more additions. But I think because this person is of technical stepbrother, stepsibling step status, that it might be really nice as an olive branch to reach out and include him. You can probably muster a thank you for coming, and that has to be your only interaction with him throughout the night. If it's because he would be a problematic guest, I think you don't need to go into that, and I don't think you should feel you have to accommodate that guest and instead just simply say, no, I'm sorry, like we went through the guest list together. And that was the point where we were going to discuss who may or may not come to this wedding. And at this point, I'm not willing to reopen the guest list. I hope you'll understand. I'm excited to have stepmom help out with XYZ. But at this point, we just aren't going to accommodate any more guests. I like your sample script. I like that you're leaning on the time question a little bit. It's not the totality of the response, but the fact that these are later additions gives a an out in some ways and it gives an out for your father as he's explaining also if he ends up talking to his wife about this i also love the idea of coming into a negotiation prepared with some concessions that there might be compromises the reality of the situation might be such that those are a big help in getting you towards the outcome that you'd want I'm appreciating that that concession is coming from my cousin from a place of real optimism <laughs> and encouragement about making room in your life and your heart for people to surprise you and for your wedding to be an event that's big enough to contain some of these differences and some of this potential tension, but that that doesn't need to be the totality of the day. It doesn't need to ruin it, that it could be part of a a really nice wedding and a wedding that starts to build some family bonds. Appreciating that positivity, I also just like the real politic side of things that says I could give up this and it might help me get that bigger thing that I want, which is always effective. So if you've got two uncles, their spouses, and a son, you've got five people technically that are being potentially added and maybe giving up one of those is the way to to get that outcome that you're looking for. I had just read in the news feed this morning, uh, you know, BuzzFeed does lists of, of like horrific stories. And they've been this summer doing quite a lot of wedding stories. And all of the horrific stories were of people that seemed like the people who wouldn't be necessarily the characters you would imagine. It wasn't like the most disliked family member or the person you have the most contention with. It was like your parent or your sibling or your best friend. and Your favorite fun uncle. Like your favorite fun person got too fun. And I do always give that leave room for surprise because you just never know both good and bad who's going to end up you know, playing those roles at your wedding. But we are hoping that with a little bit of tact and a lot of preparation, 
mission that you are going to have the guest list of your dreams and really have a wonderful time celebrating your big day. Questions like these are kind of tough to answer in any family. Suppose we hear what you have to say about them, okay? You're absolutely right, George. Most family problems can be solved through frank and friendly discussion, which points the way to a happy family life. Our next question is titled, A Bird in the Band. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I found out about your podcast while waiting for a wedding to begin. The guests in front of me were chatting, and one woman was raving about how she's an etiquette junkie and how much she loves your podcast. Yay! That was almost four years ago, and I'm so glad to have found you, as I, too, crave a little more civility in the world. My question isn't the most dire, but I'm hoping you can help me come up with a great sample script that will help me both express my gratitude and not offend. I live on the East Coast, and I'm planning to attend a music concert that takes place on the West Coast. I bought a ticket to the show, but have recently been offered a better seat by someone I met in person once a few months ago. This person lives in the city the show is taking place in and bought the extra ticket for a friend who's now not able to attend. They are an administrator of a large Facebook group for this band and have also offered to help me sell my existing ticket to another fan in the Facebook group. I don't want to come across as ungrateful, as this is a big upgrade in seating, but I'm a little afraid of selling my in-hand ticket before I receive this upgraded ticket. The physical tickets will not be mailed to us until two weeks before the show. I'd rather not risk flying all the way across the country and footing the hotel bill, only to end up stuck without a ticket to this show. I'm a woman and plan on attending the show solo in one of the biggest cities on the West Coast. How can I delicately express this sentiment without sounding too unappreciative or untrusting? Do I offer my existing ticket to another person contingent upon the upgraded ticket being transferred to me? Any sensitive language addressing this issue you can send my way would be most appreciated. Thank you, A. A, I think this is this is one of those where you definitely want to call the person who's offered you this upgraded ticket and just admit your nerves. Say, boy, you know, I'm just really nervous to actually give away this physical ticket in my hand. Help me get over this. I think that that's the way, like, like help, help me not be nervous that I won't end up without a ticket at all. And I think you can play up the side that this is nerves because this person has offered you an actual upgraded ticket. They've offered to help you sell their ticket. People don't typically do that unless they're 100% sure that they are going to be able to guarantee you the ticket that they are offering you. It might be that they just reassure you with a picture of the tickets that they have or that as soon as those tickets come in two weeks before the show that, you know, they show you that they have them in hand. Whatever it is that that could make you feel better, I think it's okay to reach out and just say, boy, I'm, I'm getting nervous. I, you know, it's the, the, the bird in the hand, as, as the title suggests. And, you know, you just get nervous about pulling that, you know, getting rid of the one you're actually holding on to. But this person that you're talking to is a manager of a Facebook fan group. You're a big fan who's flying across the country. I think you could even connect a little bit over that nervousness. I'm so excited for this show. I'm so looking forward to it. I really wouldn't want to miss it. You don't need to to base your discussion on the distrust of them delivering as much as your enthusiasm and just wanting to be sure all your ducks, to continue our bird metaphor, are in a row. A, we hope that this helps and that you're able to enjoy this concert and have a fabulous, fabulous time on the West Coast.
This next question is a tough one, and it's called "Not the Office Know It All." Dear Lizzie and Dan, I'm a longtime listener to your podcast, often taking awesome etiquette on my long runs. I'm especially fond of Lizzie's sample scripts for every occasion. Listening to her work out what to say has helped me formulate my own sample scripts when I need them. However, I'm having trouble coming up with one that is closer to home. As an engineer, I regularly find technical issues with the work my colleagues, who are peers, produce. When I point out issues before they become problems and volunteer solutions, I've noticed that my colleagues show they are upset that they have made mistakes, or they are embarrassed to note their error or lack of technical skills. When I don't point out these issues early, however, it puts tremendous strain on me to compensate for their errors. Saving the day, as it were, and the level of effort I put in for this often is not recognized. I've tried sitting down with my colleagues to address specific issues with their work, and they get very defensive, saying things like "We don't know because we haven't tried," and ignore specific evidence I present, leading to flawed products that I end up having to fix. These are my peers, and I don't have direct responsibility for their products. But it does fall on me to fix things. We all work with some uncertainty, but it's frustrating for me to encounter these roadblocks doing my best work and enabling my colleagues to do theirs. I'd love to hear how you would address problems with work products in a way that preserves working relationships while also averting problems before they become more work for me. While my intents are good, I realize I may not be framing these critiques in the best way, and I'd love to hear your ideas of some sample scripts that might work. Best well-intentioned know-it-all. As I said, I don't think this is a know-it-all. I think you are not a know-it-all. I think that you simply are getting saddled with a lot of extra work because other people are making mistakes. This is such a fine-line problem, and. In the question, we hear I recognize that these are my peers, my colleagues. That I'm not their supervisor; they don't report to me. And that level of self awareness is going to help you address the problem effectively. You have really two courses of action that are open to you. One is that you continue to work with your colleagues as best you can. And I also love the framing of this question, where you acknowledge that sample scripts are always easier when it's not your tricky situation or the relationship that really matters to you. It's why they're so effective. It's why we recommend practicing ahead of time because it can be a lot in the moment, and all of our natural, emotional, go-to places become the fallbacks that aren't always helpful to us when we're trying to say something specific and clear, and that. Maybe runs counter to some of those impulses. If you're usually blunt, very forward, very direct with people, and you're realizing that you've got to deliver critique or feedback in a way that's not so blunt or direct, practicing and planning ahead of time can be really helpful. So, I want to look at that approach, and then I also want to acknowledge that there is the option of talking to someone who does have authority, who does have the. Standing to say, let's put some processes in place where we check work product throughout the development as a team, or where we're able to address problems that come up more immediately and more quickly before it gets to a point where we have to backtrack. I think it's also important when you do speak with your manager 
to ask about this responsibility issue that's starting to happen and say, you know, I've I have tried speaking with folks to give them the heads up about the types of mistakes that I'm seeing and ways they can head them off at the past so that they aren't then adding to my workload. But that is not resulting in this changing and I'm getting a lot of resistance. I'm wondering if you can help me navigate this situation, because at the end of the day, you know, you're thinking about work cost and value of time and how much time is being spent fixing other people's mistakes as opposed to moving products forward for the benefit of the company. And it might be that that's just structurally part of it, that part of the way management sees your job is you're the one who finally fixed things and gets them to the point where they're deliverable. And as frustrating as it might be, that might be the role that you play in this team. It's also implicit in what Lizzie was saying that if you talk to your manager about helping the team function better, if that's the framing for your whole approach, they might be interested in hearing your ideas for helping make everything run more efficient, for getting that work product that ultimately you are going to be responsible for fixing in as good shape as it could possibly be in. And some of your ideas might be really helpful to getting that to happen. That's the manager discussion. And I think that framework of asking for help, wanting to be a team player, wanting to optimize efficiency in terms of your role and other people's role, I think that's a discussion most managers are going to be open to. And if possible, they're going to want to work with you to to make things better. Absolutely. So we know that moving to talking to a manager is really the next step here. When it comes to talking with your colleagues, I think you've already done pretty much all you can do. I'm hearing things like, you know, I've addressed the problem in multiple ways. I've let them know how this affects people further down the line. I've tried to, and I I hate using that word educate, but I've tried to illuminate where these problems could be fixed ahead of time. Some of what may be needed in those conversations is the reassurance that you understand how difficult the problem is, that you understand, I know it's so hard to see something, you know, coming down the pike, but I think that you know, I'm hoping that some of the tips I'm giving you right now will allow for that to happen in the future. Um, Like, I remember when I first started noticing these things happen in my own work or something, you know, giving that relatable moment where you've had to start thinking in a slightly different way to catch mistakes earlier on. That sympathizing, that understanding tone, that voice that says, boy, I'm really on your side with this because if we're all working more efficiently, all the work's going to get done faster and better, and that's just going to make us all happier here. I think that those are the kinds of things when you do try to address it with colleagues that can help. But it does sound like you've been doing some of that hard work, so I really want to encourage you to move to the management level. Whether it's your colleagues or the manager, that tone is so important. Oftentimes, it's more important than the substance of what you're saying. Although, In work environments, it comes down to substance, and that's underlying what's going on here. It is such a tough situation. We wish you the best as you continue to work it out. You see, that's what it takes to win the fight against an ulcer at work.
Our next question is a short one, and it's titled "To Whom the Card Goes." I think we've used that title before. <laughs> is it proper to send a sympathy card addressed to my friend whose father has just passed away, or should it be addressed to both her and her husband? Thank you. We will make short work of this one, cousin. Send it to both. They are a couple. They have both experienced this loss. Generally, in this type of situation, you do want to acknowledge the loss for both members of the couple, even though it was her father. That's the quick etiquette answer, and good work getting that condolence card in the mail. Our next question is titled "Urban Workplace Myth." Okay, I are we about to dispel yes. something no, here? <laughs> okay, I thought this was really good because in our e-learning program, a version of a grosser version of this question comes up, and I kind of always question whether or not anyone would ever really do this at their desk. And we have had it come into the podcast before, but I still, to me, this is the urban workplace myth. <laughs> hey, Lizzie and Dan, is it rude to ask a coworker to stop clipping their fingernails at their desk? They sit in a cubicle in my row, so I don't necessarily see them doing it. But the clipping sound is driving me nuts. Thanks for your wonderful show, Katie. So in our e-learning program, it's toenails, and Larry's clipping his toenail. And the the picture that I used when creating the program grosses Dan out to no end. And and some clients have requested that we don't use this example because it's too gross. So we have a shaving at your desk version of this problem. When we're talking about personal hygiene and people grooming at their workstations, so uh, Katie, thank you for sending this in because it does it, it brings back fond memories of, of Larry, who is the person we labeled. Oh, that picture was so gross. The <laughs> they were clean toenails. Um, <laughs> so gross, though. Uh, I would say that this is a, a task that should be taken to the restroom, and I think it's one. Typically, we say that it is better for you to address the problem directly, and so. I think making the quick and short request of just, hey, Sally, would you mind taking the clipping of the nails to the restroom when you do it? It would be really helpful. The noise is very distracting. I think that that's a simple way to to go with it. If Sally doesn't, then you can bring it up to a managerial level and just say, hey, can we have some kind of a talk about, you know, what grooming can take place at our desks and what should be taken to the restroom? There's some nail clipping going on on a frequent enough basis that it's bothersome. What's interesting to me is that that is happening on a frequent enough basis. I mean, is it every day someone clip it? I can't imagine nails grow that fast. That's because mine grow fairly slowly. So, I don't know. It's this. This is not a problem I've encountered before. But it helps to believe that it could be possible because we get a question affirming it.、Uh, yes, indeed. What I love is also Chris is laughing hysterically in the background. He can barely contain himself today. <laughs> I was also thinking to myself, trying to put myself in the frame of mind that's the most generous possible, that this person might think they're being discreet. They might、True. think that they're in their cubicle. No one can see. No one's walking by right now. I'm just able to do this, and it's not a big deal. I'm and, even doing it over my trash can. Like I'm not. There aren't like nail clippings flying up over the sides of the the walls. So being really specific when you mention it, and mentioning that it's the sound that's the giveaway, might be helpful and might be enough to get someone to. Rethink their strategy, and hopefully, just that little mention is enough to start to correct this problem. Katie, we hope that that helps. Best of luck for a quiet work environment. But there was one habit Stanley hadn't learned yet. He didn't clean his fingernails when he washed his hands. And goodness, how dirty they were! I said, Stanley, 
Dirty nails carry germs, and they look ugly, too. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On social media, we are at Emily Post Institute on Instagram. We are Awesome Etiquette on Facebook. And on Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. Just remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we hear from Carrie. Hi, I have some feedback on your latest episode about how to address an acquaintance who is trans. One way the letter writer could acknowledge the transition, if it's recent, without having a whole conversation about it is to give a sincere compliment. Something that affirms their gender is true and that they have control over. For example, not new facial hair whose growth they can't predict. I'm thinking, I love this choose-your-gender-affirming item of clothing, or simply, you look so happy. This can be a subtle, I see you, without verging into, I'm being aggressively supportive because I feel awkward territory. The letter writer might also feel more comfortable if they do some basic Google research on what it's like to be trans and how to be supportive of someone who is transitioning. They may not learn anything they don't already know, but it can feel reassuring to have that basic knowledge under your belt. Thanks, Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much for sending this suggestion. I really like that idea of turning to, I love the dress you're wearing, or that suit looks fantastic on you, whatever it is. I think that those things can be very affirming, and they take the focus off of the actual transition that's occurred and simply take the person exactly as they are, the same way you would comment anyone on a beautiful dress or a great tie or something else about their appearance that evening. Never underestimate the power of a sincere compliment. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to return to a favorite of ours, Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner. The section we'll be reading today is about eating with your hands and begins on page 169. This particular passage helps in a small way to understand that whole idea of pinkies out, something that we at Emily Post do not recommend. Margaret Visser begins, Delicacy and adroitness of gesture are drummed into people who eat with their hands from childhood. It might be considered polite, for example, to scoop food up, or it could be imperative to grasp each morsel from above. Politeness works by abjuring whole ranges of behavior, which the body could easily encompass. Indeed, very often the easier movement is precisely what is out of bounds. It was once the mark of the utmost refinement in our own culture to deny oneself the use of the fourth and fifth fingers when eating. That's your ring finger and your pinky. The thumb and first two fingers alone were allowed. Bones, provided they were small ones, could be taken up but held between the thumb and forefinger only. We hear of especially sophisticated people who use certain fingers only for one dish so that they had other fingers, still unsticky and ungreasy, held in reserve for taking food or sauce from a different platter. 
This form of constraint was possible only if the food was carefully prepared so that no tugging was necessary. The meat must be extremely tender, cut up, or hashed and pressed into small cakes. None but the rich and those with plenty of servants were likely to manage such delicacy. It followed that only they could be truly refined. Distancing the fourth and fifth fingers from the operation of taking food can be performed by lifting them up, elegantly curled. The constraint has forced them to serve merely as ornament. A hand used in this manner becomes a dramatic expression of the economy of politeness. When a modern tea drinker is laughed at for holding her cup handle in three fingers, lifting the two unused digits in the air, we think it is because we find her ridiculously pretentious. What we really mean is that she is conservative to the point that her model of social success is completely out of date, and the constraints and ornaments with which she clothes her behavior are now inappropriate. Which is another way of saying that although she is trying very hard to be correct, she succeeds merely in being improper. Modern constraints and ornaments are quite simply different. We should remember that snobbery has usually delighted in scorning what is passe. I love this section so much. I do too, but I think we might have just been called snobs if we're scorning what is passe. No. Yes. No. Because she's saying that it was it was passe to do this, and if we look at people who do it now, that we're scorning them. That would be us being snobs. You're right. There is a little bit of a dig there. That- <laughs> And, and it's an appropriate dig. We shouldn't be <laughs> looking at other people and saying, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. That's Ew. so old-fashioned. That doesn't apply anymore. Don't they know any better? Sounds gross, right? But it is sort of an affectation. It is. It, it does look kind of silly when you do it. And is someone who's doing that today really holding on to conservatively something that they used before or adopted before? Or are they adopting a manner that they aren't thinking about or aren't really sure how it applies. Does words, it even matter, though? Is it snobby just to look at someone and say, oh, well, they don't know? Yes, of course it would be snobby. But you also don't want to. I like the fact that Visser in here still talks about the fact that that when you see that, when you see someone doing something of old or something that really has no practicality to it, that you wonder why they are choosing to add that to their display. And that is one of my favorite parts of this section because it does look at the practicality where this gesture emerged from. Right. The idea that once upon a time you ate with your fingers more and just the way that you did it, which fingers you used, how you – You see us b- pointing and, and picking at things, imaginary food items in our I'm hands. I'm imagining We're four different right things now. I could eat. I could eat like, one with this one and one with this one. And my pinkies are out when I'm doing it. And in the process, you would keep these fingers, the ones that were extra – Extra clean and out of the way. It's it's a great passage. One of the reasons I remember it so well is that it does explain very clearly where this manner that we've all witnessed or is sort of part of our 
collective etiquette consciousness came from. And that's it's always fun to know. Absolutely. And there are plenty of cultures that still eat with their hands. And there is a lot of specificity to what is considered polite with each of those gestures and which fingers are being used and what angle things are being approached from and which types of foods get eaten which ways. So it is still something, you know, while while we in American dining tend to really use our forks and knives and we do have finger foods and we talk about them and we try not to put our pinkies out with things. There are other cultures where it might be completely appropriate. In fact, it might really make a difference between being polite or being rude. Once again, thank you, Margaret Visser, for your excellent work. They are not eager to give a tea because they aren't sure of how they should dress or how they should behave. A tea is only a formal way of entertaining and showing respect to others. Etiquette itself is simply the way one polite person shows consideration for another. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. And today we have Christine. Hello from Boston. While I was walking into work today, I was walking behind a woman who was carrying a larger box that was clearly a return. We were walking down a pretty busy road when I saw a UPS truck stop and the driver call out to ask if that was for UPS. It was, and she dropped the box off with him. I thought it was so considerate of the driver to notice this person and take a moment to see if he could help make her day easier. I'm very impressed with this driver, best Christine. I love moments like that. They just, you know, people noticing each other, taking a moment to see how they could be helpful. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you may leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst, I-N-S-T, and Lizzie A. Post, that's Lizzie with an I-E. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And on Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about this by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on iTunes, TuneIn, Pandora, or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It really helps with the show ranking, and that helps other people find Awesome Etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thank, Thank you, you, Chris. Chris.